All right. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all. Let me uh, invite you to head to your seats. And we want to encourage you to continue these conversations after church during visiting our, uh, all our booths we have for our ministry fair. But uh, as we get started here in the month of October, what we're going to be doing is we're going to have about nine weeks to go through the book of Exodus uh, from now until we get to Advent. And the way we're going to do it is we're not going to go chapter by chapter or verse by verse. But we want to give kind of a, not a 15, maybe 20,000 foot overview on the book of Exodus. And so this morning we begin that. And so I want to give you, I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. During those days, many, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we thank you that this morning you allow us to hear your words and you tell us you're a God who hears us, who sees us and who knows us. And Father, we ask that this morning your spirit would come in such a way that we would be able to experience that afresh, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, so we can see the beauty of all that you've done and all that you continue to do in our lives. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, throughout the book of Exodus, a crucial, central question is asked of the reader. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is something Pharaoh asks in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. But we want to use that question. Who is the Lord really to give us a way of looking at the book of Exodus over these next nine weeks or so? Because that's a question that I think every single one of us asks in one form or another. You may be asking as someone who's returning to church. You may be asking that question as someone who is saying, I've known God forever and I feel like some days I don't know him or he doesn't know me. And we're asking this question to help us to see with greater clarity who the God of the scriptures actually is. Because especially when things get hard, we know, we begin to ask these questions. Does God exist? Where is he? Is he holy? What's he like? Will he come and deliver us? And this morning, we want to begin with Exodus chapter 1 and 2 here, because there's a whole lot going on. And use this question again, who is the Lord? And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this passage. And it's a long passage, so I'm just going to dive in. No little story, no introduction. Let's get right down to business here in the passage. Because what we begin to see is that God here is one who works in hidden ways especially in hard and very difficult circumstances. See, one of the things the writer of Exodus does in a really brilliant way, and you get this when you read the first two chapters in its entirety, is that you begin to notice God is hardly mentioned at all in these two chapters. And what you begin to see, and you get a glimpse of it in the reading today, is that their circumstance just got worse And worse and worse. And God hardly seems to take notice. And it confronts us as the reader with this question again. Who is the Lord? Does he exist? Is he going to do something? Does he care? And I think this is the natural question that arises when tragedy strikes any of us. And things are just hard. And we begin to see here, things were really hard for God's people. Notice how the story is laid out, because things really do go from bad to worse. First, we're told a new king arises in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that's ominous, because Joseph was the one who carried favor with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the Egyptians invited the Israelites to the land and welcomed them to settle in the land of Goshen. And we see this at the end of the book of Genesis. But now a king arises who did not know Joseph. And this pharaoh is worried about these immigrants that have shown up. They pose a threat to the kingdom of Egypt. So what does he do? 
Did he expel them from Egypt, send them back from where they came from? He does something worse. Because he ordered that the Israelites become slaves. They lose their freedom, and he afflicts them with back-breaking labor. But that doesn't satisfy this Pharaoh. Because the Israelites were now deemed a security risk to the whole nation, even though they're enslaved, and things get worse. Pharaoh orders that all the male infants be tossed in the Nile River. He commands this to all his people. It's a search and destroy operation. And that's how chapter 1 ends, with these words. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, I want you to just use your imagination for a second and place yourself as a participant in this story. Every male infant is to be killed. I mean, infanticide and genocide and the forced assimilation of all the females into Egyptian culture. No wonder these people may be asking, God, where are you? Are you going to do something? Don't you care what is happening to us? But there's this one little boy who manages to find his way into Pharaoh's household, right? And you think he's perfectly positioned to help. Except when he grows up, we read in one violent outburst of anger, he kills a man and becomes a fugitive. It's like the door of hope just opens and all of a sudden it just shut in our face. Bang! One tragedy. Injustice after another. God is barely mentioned and it is all building to this climax at the end of chapter 2 where God himself is the object of a string of verbs. And listen to this description and look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You know what this text is actually saying? That the people groaned and cried out for help. And then what do we see? That God heard their groaning. You know, one way to put this, one theologian put it this way. God actually hears our tears. That our tears have a voice. And God understands them. God hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when the scriptures say that God remembered, it doesn't mean he somehow forgot and we have to help him jog his memory here. God remembered means God calls to mind all the promises with an intention to act on it. So God hears. God remembers. And we are told in verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. Now he always sees, we know that. But the idea is God is moved with compassion. He sees you. He understands you. And the verse concludes with God knew. God knew. Nothing his people are experiencing escapes his notice or his concern. And you, do you understand what the writer is doing here? 
It's saying things are really, really hard. It's almost a relentless, like, incident after incident of how terrible life could be in Egypt. That's not what they went there for. And you're left wondering, God, are you going to do anything? What is happening? Do you see? Do you hear? Do you care? And we're told he does. Because the reality is, even when God seems hidden, God is at work. Even when he seems hidden, he sees, he hears, he remembers, and he knows. And you begin to see throughout this narrative, God works actually even through our choices. Notice a few things that happen in this story. You know, remember the midwives? We're going to come back to them again because they're really, really important. But they actually dared to disobey Pharaoh, his commands, and they go against him. They tell a little fib. He believes them. He's a fool. Okay, that's on him. Apart from that, I don't think Moses lives, you know? Think about some of the details that are taking place in this story. If Pharaoh's daughter is not bathing where she was in the Nile, she would not have found Moses or took pity on that baby. And maybe we forget, she actually had to disobey her father because she knows, is this not one of the Hebrew children? That's what she says. Who else would have the call to defy the Pharaoh except maybe the king's own daughter? And maybe my favorite little detail in this story here, Moses' mom puts him in this little basket and casts him off in the Nile. Now, the irony is she actually obeyed Pharaoh, didn't she? She threw him in the the Nile. And you know what's going to happen? We see his sister in the reeds. We find out later her name is Miriam. She's watching from a distance, and as Pharaoh's daughter draws him up out of the water. She comes out of the bushes and says, you know, I know someone who can nurse him. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Can you go get her? Yes. And what does she do? She brings Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter says, well, if I pay you, will you nurse this child for me? I think she would have done it for free. <laughs> I, but she's going to get paid too. You know, it, it's, it's these little things. And you have this little heartbreaking little verse in chapter 1, verse 10. Because when Moses grew older, probably around three or four, his mother had to bring him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Moses' mother hands over her child. This Hebrew child now is Egyptian by adoption, is now uniquely placed for a future no one could see. He grows up in Pharaoh's household. He gets a world-class education. And even though in the story, everything is falling apart, there's bad and evil things, especially Pharaoh himself. Notice, Pharaoh cannot thwart God's plan of salvation. He can't make this point more emphatic, the writer I'm talking about. Because everything Pharaoh tries actually accomplishes the exact opposite he was hoping for. I mean, he wanted to enslave the Israelites and oppress them even further. 
But it's the thing that sets in motion what? Their salvation. And it's only because he tries to kill all the male infants that Moses ends up where? In his household. And he's given the training he needs to actually become the redeemer of his people. One thing happens, bad to worse, but it doesn't mean God is not at work. I mean, we get to the end of chapter 2, and the writer is trying to tell us, you see, God heard. God hears your tears. He remembers, he saw, and he knew. Now, let me apply this for a second. And I want to say this very gently. Could it be possible that God actually has a plan for the suffering you are going through right now? And I say, I say that gently and respectfully because some of you are going through some really hard things. And you've been asking, God, where are you? Do you see my suffering? Do you hear me? And some of the things you're experiencing are just, just terrible. And God, let me tell you, does not want anyone to suffer. He takes delight in no one's suffering. This is what Ezekiel 33 tells us. And yet, the scriptures are trying to tell us behind all the suffering and evil, he's working to bring about good and justice. Perhaps even in the midst of your suffering. So I ask again very gently and respectfully, could it be possible that God has a plan and is working in the midst of your suffering right now? You know, there's a line later on in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. I mean, when they heard that God had visited and seen their affliction, what did they do? They worshiped God. It's as if knowing that he understands their affliction, he hears and he knows, was enough to sustain them. And could it be possible that for you, whatever you're going through right now, and the deepest things that you can't even utter, the fact that God sees you, hears you, and knows may be enough to sustain you. Because you can begin to believe that somehow, in the midst of all the sadness and tears and the pain, that God is somehow working to bring about good and justice in your life. That's the first thing I want us to look at. God works in hidden ways, especially in hard and difficult circumstances. That's the first thing we see. And when you begin to think about who is the Lord, gosh, friends, just maybe there's more going on. And that's a posture of faith. And that's a questioning of the circumstances and saying, God, if that's the case, would you let me know? that you hear, that you see. So that's the first point. Now, secondly, I want you to know this, because I think this is incredibly encouraging. God not only works in the mundane details of our lives, but even in her failures and her mistakes. God works not only in, in the mundane details of our lives, 
but even in our failures and our mistakes. Because look at Moses. Let's take a look at him for a second. Because look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I don't know if you thought of Moses in this way, but he actually kills a man in a moment of anger. Now, some commentators have tried to defend Moses and said, you know, uh, hey, maybe that was a mistake. But I don't think you can get away from thinking he knew what he was doing is wrong. Because why would anyone do this first before you go do something bad? You know, usually when you look to the left, you look to the right, and you're checking to see if the coast is clear, you're up to no good, okay? And I think he knew because he takes God's law into his own hands. He kills a man, and then he buries the body, okay? That is a failure on his part. And word gets out about what he did, and in verse 15, Pharaoh wants to put him to death. So now he's a fugitive. He's on the run, and he hides out in the land of Midian. Now, the point about the Midianites is they're kind of a semi-nomadic people. So they lived in the wilderness. They're moving around. So think about this. If Moses is a fugitive from Egypt, and he's now cast in the wilderness, and he only ended up there because of his own failure, his sin, his mistakes, this is going to change the course of his life. But God is going to use this failure to accomplish his will for Moses in his life. In chapter 2, verse 22, we know not only does he get married, but he has a son. And Moses called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He calls his son Gershom. Because he's saying, now I realize I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. And we don't know if he's talking about his time in Egypt or the fact that he's in Midian. Maybe it's both. But you know what he realized? He's realized, I've never really had a home. I am in the desert, in the wilderness. I am on the run. It's as if God is preparing him for something that is to come. Because he's going to have to lead the people through the desert. And he's going to have to lead them to a place, a new home, the promised land, which he cannot perceive or see. He will be leading his people for the next 40 years after their release. And it's almost as if his sin, his failure, his mistake, somehow God is using his providential care to prepare him for this situation. Let me ask you, is this a God you know? A God who can take your failures, your brokenness, even your mistakes, and weave it into something beautiful and good? Through his work situation, you know, we begin to see different things. We know that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, he becomes a shepherd. Now, if you're a prince of Egypt at one point in your life, the last thing you ever want to become is a shepherd. And you know why? Because we're told in, back in Genesis chapter 46, every shepherd is detestable to the Egyptians. 
It's like if you want a job that has no social status and everyone looks down on you, you become a shepherd in Egypt. And here he is, the prince of Egypt who now holds a job with no status. He's learning how to care for sheep who can't take care of themselves. He has to care for them, protect them, guide them, feed them. It's essentially what he's going to have to do with the people of Israel. He's training, he's learning. He's out there. It's not something he chose on his own, nor anything he would choose. But you know what? This is what he does for 40 years. Because in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, in Stephen's speech, he says this, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Forty years from the time he became a fugitive is when he's going to meet God at the burning bush next chapter. I mean, can you imagine how he must feel? Gosh, the prime of my life, Lord, was taken away from me so I could be trained up to do something. I, didn't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, and you're sending me out to do this thing that's going to feel super scary. I don't think he would have picked this on his own. But through his failure, through his sin... God begins to use Moses. He humbles him. The violence, maybe, of his temper is going to be broken. Something had to be done about that. He goes on to become, as we're told in the book of Numbers, the most humble and meek person on the earth. Because that wasn't the guy we met in the beginning of chapter 2. God is at work in these small mundane details even through our failures. Friends, like, I I think if you think about this, like, how can you not think, man, this is good news for me? Because I think all of us in here kind of can go through all of the different things that we've done, perhaps we're ashamed about, the errors we've made, the foolish decisions we've made, you know, and think, God, maybe I've really blown it. But the Lord God of the scriptures is one who loves to redeem those who are broken and those who are failures. For those of you who feel like you're just stuck in your life, maybe you're like Moses in the wilderness for 40 years and you're wondering, gosh, I thought I'd have a different life at this point of my life. At my age, at my stage, maybe you dreamed of something different and you're thinking, Man, I thought I'd be retired by now, playing with my grandkids, or you thought you'd be married by now, or you would have a family by now, or you're further along in your career ladder, or you just feel like you're stuck. Don't forget that perhaps God is up to something even in that. That God may be doing something in this season that you're feeling really stuck in. And that God is out for your redemption, and he's at work in your life. Could that be possible? Because who is the Lord? See? Who is the Lord? He's a God who works in hidden ways, especially in hard and difficult circumstances. God works in in the mundane details of our lives, even in our failures and our mistakes. But he's also the God who works in really counterintuitive ways. Did you notice here, and I got this from Tim Keller. I thought this was brilliant. 
Notice who all the heroes are in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Midwives, Moses' mother, his sister Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter. They're all women. They're all women. These are people without status and power in ancient Egypt. God is working in counterintuitive ways. God's not using the strong and powerful to bring about his work here. God works through the outsiders, the weak and the humble like the midwives, to accomplish his plan of salvation. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Exodus. I mean, notice what happened with the midwives. These women were people themselves who were outsiders because we're told in chapter 121, because the midwives feared God, he had given them families. Meaning, they were barren prior. They were commanded, remember, to kill the baby boys. But what did they do? They disobeyed Pharaoh. They defied Pharaoh in order to obey God because they feared God. And God blessed them with families. And did you notice these two women actually have names in this story? Shifra and Pua. And did you notice the Pharaoh is never, ever given a name in this passage? Scholars and archaeologists have been debating for centuries, which Pharaoh is this? The only people who receive a name, verse 15, it says, And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. He names the barren women, but he doesn't name the king. If you've ever been to Egypt, every monument is about what? The pyramids, the obelisks. It's about what? Proclaiming the name of that pharaoh and that king for all eternity. And here the scriptures are saying people all over the world today know the name of Shifra and Pua. But no one knows the name of the pharaoh. That's fascinating. I mean, it's not an accident. Shifra and Pua, they may be nobodies compared to the kings of this world. But the kings of the world who don't know God are going to be forgotten. Because God always works through counterintuitive ways. He works through the weak to demonstrate his strength. And maybe all of this you might be saying is, wow, that's really interesting. That's cool. Okay, God uses the weak. He works, you know, uh, through our failures. That's good. Um, yeah, you're telling me, Iron, I can't perceive God is at work. And when things are really hard, we just need to believe that maybe he still can. And all of these things may be interesting to you. And yet, you may be saying, that's not helping me. Because I don't think it's enough. Because it's not enough for me either. Because if I end right here where I'm just saying, asking you to believe harder that God can be those things, just have more faith, and it's on you. It's on you if you don't believe that. That's not enough, because it doesn't show us enough of the character of God. So I want us to go back to Exodus 2.10 for a second. This is when Moses' mother brings him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. I mean, it's a quick verse and it's easy to read over that. But think about it. 
a mother. I mean, she has been with him. She has given birth to him. Until he's three or four, she's taken care of him, gotten up for him in the middle of the night when he was sick, and she's going to hand him over to Pharaoh's daughter, assuming I may never see my son again. Why would she do that? To protect him? To allow him to have a chance at life? A life that she couldn't give him? I mean, it's a heartbreaking moment. And maybe you begin to ask, how can we trust a God who would allow this? That a mother would have to give up her child. But the only way we trust a God who says he hears our tears, he sees us, he knows us, and he will free us is because he is a God who also gave up his son. He gave up his son so we can be freed from a far greater slavery than physical slavery. Slavery, actually, to sin and death. Because God raises up a deliverer for us far greater than Moses himself. It's Jesus Christ. I mean, think about the details of the story that we just read today and ask yourself, is this just about Moses? I mean, because doesn't it sound familiar? A king fearing political insurrection orders that all the male infants be killed. We hear that story every year at Christmas. Sounds like Herod in the beginning of the Gospels. He is also prepared in the wilderness as a shepherd leader. His own did not receive him, right? What's the point of this story? One greater than Moses, Jesus, the ultimate Moses, is the one who is to come. See, Moses is willing to die to free his people, but Jesus actually did. Jesus actually did. See, the way you can have a faith that God is actually at work, especially in hard and difficult times, is this. Remember the most agonizing moment of Jesus' life on the cross. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what he is greeted with? The silence of God. When he was forsaken so that you and I could become children of God. So that no matter what is happening, no matter how silent God seems, when you look at the cross, you begin to understand God hears me. God sees me. He hears my tears. You know, this is verse 24 at the end of chapter 2 where it says, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. And God saw and God knew. You see, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? The one who would not spare his own son So we could have our names written in the book of life. And the invitation this passage is giving to us is this. Will you trust him? Will you give yourself to him? Think about that this week. And let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you. That um, although you seem very absent... Or you seem like a God who doesn't notice, but you're a God who hears 
You're a God who sees. You're a God who remembers and you're a God who knows. And you showed this to us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And this morning we ask that, Father, we would walk away today reflecting deeper on these spiritual realities you tell us. That you are a God who offers us a relationship with you because you love us so deeply. Even when we doubt and even when we fail. And we ask that you would drill this down deep into our hearts so that we would be a people who loves you, who worships you, and who serves you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.